second lesson is from the Epistle to the Hebrews. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal stole, sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and stone, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who hear it beg that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Quote, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, the, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing, the removing of, what cannot be, of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. Well, we've spent the last few weeks looking at the letter to the Hebrews. I don't think that's because the sayings of Jesus and Luke are getting extremely difficult. Uh, but maybe I'm choosing to avoid a little bit of what he has to say to us in Luke. But mostly it's because these passages in, in Hebrews 11 and 12 have been so rich and almost like directly laid down for where we are as a little community, a little outpost of God's kingdom. Is that a sprinkler outside? Does somebody want to close that door? Thanks. <laughs> Couldn't tell if that was a ghost in the machine or not. The letter to the Hebrews, as the title that the church has given this text suggests, was written to communities of Jewish Christians. These people have been convinced that Jesus really was the Messiah, the promised one. And they were baptized into the church and they began to live as Christians. But now they're starting to face hardship. And some of them are starting to face even persecution. And, and they're being drawn back to Judaism because it's familiar. It's a little bit easier. It doesn't have quite all of the tension that this new way of life has brought into their relationships. 
Frankly, it would have been a lot easier to just blend in with surrounding culture if they could just go back to Judaism. If we'd been following Hebrews from chapter 1 onward, we'd see that the writer is building this case from the very first verses up until what we just heard read, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, showing us that the new covenant is light years ahead of the old covenant, of the law of Moses, that this new relationship that is available to people in Christ is so much better than what Judaism has to offer. It's like a shadow compared to the reality. The very beginning of this letter, the author leaps out of the gates by saying, look, in times past, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways at various times through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, literally in son. The speaking of God is now in the giving of the son, the one through whom the entire universe was created and in whom it finds its rightful end. He is the one who inherits all of creation. And then last week we listened as the writer of Hebrews pleaded with his readers to run the race. Is that in the speakers? I'm sorry, this is really driving me nuts. Is that in the speakers? Okay, I'm going to turn this off. Let's try this. Better? Ah, there we go. Hey, guys. Okay. Everybody with me? The new covenant is better than the old. God used to speak through other people, and now he himself arrived in God the Son to give us a message, to give us life. And the writer of the Hebrews is pleading with his readers to run the race. We looked at this last week. To look at the cloud of witnesses that is around you, of all the saints that have gone on before you. To indeed look at the example of Christ himself, who was faithful unto the shedding of blood, and to not go back to the old way of living. To not be encumbered again by hindrances and sins that so easily entangle, but instead to press on, to strengthen your weak arms and your knocking knees, so that you might enter into the holiness of Christ, without which no one may see God. And if you thought last week was kind of explicit, like a little bit sort of on the nose in terms of, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian, well, I have some bad news for you. This week just blows right past it. This section of Hebrews is the rhetorical peak of the entire letter, and in it, this author is playing all of his or her cards. It's as if the writer of this letter has now set the whole stage on fire to burn down everything that's not important and get your attention, to tell you that this is what life is about, that before you are two roads, one that leads to death, and one that leads to life. This passage in Hebrews 12 is a difficult passage, not because it's hard to interpret, but because it is so stark. And frankly, our gospel reading really doesn't help us much with all that talk about the narrow door. So before we jump into the starkness of this passage in Hebrews, I want to just say something loud and clear, okay? What I want for each one of you, every time you leave this place, what I want ringing in your ears and deep in your guts is a knowledge that the love of Jesus has no bounds. 
that his mercy will follow you all the days of your life. I want you to understand when you go home that this is by grace. Every morning I want you to wake up and tell yourself, I have been given entrance into the kingdom of God by nothing more than the mercy of Christ. I have been brought into this race by grace. I am running this race by grace, and I will be brought to the completion of this race by nothing more than grace, by the work that Jesus has done on my behalf in his life, death, and resurrection. It has been given to you gratis, free. There is nothing you can do to repay it. It's just a gift. And it's actually for this very reason that the writer of Hebrews is dumping on so much lighter fluid in this passage so that we'll have ringing in our ears, don't go back. Don't go back to your old way of life. Don't return to your attempts at self-justification. Now for his initial readers, the temptation was to go back to metaphorically Mount Sinai, right? To go back to the Mosaic Law, this, this place and time in Israel's past where they were given really clear instructions about how to live in covenant with God. And I think that's why the author paints this as almost kind of like the underworld from Stranger Things, right? I mean, it's just like this weird place of darkness and fire and gloom. Sinai was the place that Israel was brought to after she fled Egypt, and it's here that the law is handed down. It's also here that Israel was to assemble in worship of Yahweh, but instead, what does she do? She falls into idolatry and rebels. Moses had been gone for far too long. So give us a God that glitters, a God that we can see. Israel began to let bitterness take root, and she no longer understood the gift that had been given to her. And she instead just begins this cycle of rebellion and destruction and rebellion and destruction and rebellion and fear. And when the writer quotes Moses as saying, I tremble with fear, He's saying, I tremble with fear because he thinks that God is about to destroy the entire nation because of their sin, because of their willful rebellion against him. Now, we may not have Mount Sinai to look back to as a thing that we might want to return to, but we're not altogether different. And I think that's why the author includes this example of Esau and why it's so striking for us, because it's an example of a man who rejected a gift. An incredible gift. This inheritance that was his was nothing he had earned. It was his simply because he was the firstborn. How many of you chose your birth order? He didn't do anything to deserve this. He couldn't possibly have chosen this. Call it chance or providence or serendipity or whatever you want, but it's not works. It has nothing to do with Esau that he was given this chance at an inheritance. And it's not just inheritance. It's a double portion. That's what the oldest male would receive, a double portion of the inheritance. You know what the gift really was? It wasn't even just material. It was to be in the line of those stars that Abraham went out and saw, that God showed him would be his descendants. It was to be part of God's salvation plan in the world. The gift that Esau was given was an opportunity to work with God in his world to bring about the salvation of all nations. 
and he gave it away for a bowl of porridge. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand is that we are tempted to give away our inheritance for a bowl of porridge every day. And so the call of this passage is twofold. That those of you that have been brought into Christ see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And by extension, that no one allows a, bitter, a root of bitterness to spring up. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. These are the two calls of this passage. Do not reject him who is speaking. And see to it that everyone obtains grace from God. And the crux of this passage rests on these images of, of the two mountains, which represent the two covenants, right? Each mountain has seven descriptions. Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, is described, as I already said, a little bit negatively. Like, you really don't want to go back here, okay? It's a mountain that can be touched, but it's got blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, a trumpet blaring, and a voice that was so terrifying that the people came to Moses and said, please make him stop talking. If he talks to us again, we'll die. You have to talk to him on our behalf. It was a terrifying sight. But notice what the writer says. That's not the mountain that you have been brought to. No, you have come to the living God's city, to Mount Zion, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, a place with innumerable angels throwing a festival, to the church of the firstborn, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word. I mean, that's almost like imagery overload, right? If this was an art piece, we would say, dude, too much with the mixed media. Give us one thing at a time. But I promise you, every word and image was carefully chosen. Zion was the site of the temple. It's the place where the people watched the cloud of God's glory descend and rest upon it. And they knew that his presence was with them. Conversely, it's also the place where they saw his glory rise up and leave as they were heading toward destruction and exile. Jerusalem is the city of peace. It's the city of David, the one through whom the Messiah would come. It signifies the reign of God as it should be in all the earth. It's a place the prophets foretold where all people from all nations would stream to and worship the one true God, and they would stream there in peace with the true God and with one another. Not just Israel, but her arch enemies, Egypt and Assyria, would come in in peace and worship together in Jerusalem. This mountain we've been brought to, we're told, has angels in festal gathering. I mean, this is Daniel 7, when he has this vision of the Ancient of Days in robes as white as snow and this thick hair, and he's seated on a throne of fire, and fire is issuing forth from him. And surrounding him are thousands upon thousands of angels serving him, and ten thousands of ten thousands of angels surrounding him, which is ancient speak for like bajillions, man. We can't even count them. There are so many. This is Isaiah 6. He's seeing the vision of God with the train of his robe filling up the entire temple and the seraphim, these strange six-winged creatures, ceaselessly calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. 
The whole earth is filled, filled with his glory. You have been brought to a place where God is the judge of all, but notice you're not afraid. It's not a courtroom. It's a festival. The judgment is one of joy. You've been brought to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's a place where all the saints who have gone on before now reside. From Abel to Abraham to Stephen, the first martyr, all the way down to your great-grandparents, your grandparents, your parents who were in the church. To Jesus, the mediator. That word doesn't just mean a guy who comes in between two parties and works things out. It means a guy who puts himself as the guarantor. So that when you accrue debt, he says, I'll pay it. God the Son is your guarantor. He is your mediator of a new covenant. God made man so that you might enter the divine life. And to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. When the people of Israel were dedicated to the Lord at Mount Sinai, they had sprinkled upon them the blood of goats and rams. But you have been plunged into the blood of the perfect lamb, the only sinless man to have ever walked the earth, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only son. But do you know the most incredible part of this passage? Out of all of these images and descriptions, the most incredible part of this passage is the one we skipped right past. You have already come. You're already there. You've already been brought to this mountain, to this festival city. How can this be? How can this be? I mean, we have to know that our arrival there isn't, like, fully there, right? Is it just me? Or do we look around and it doesn't really feel like that description? A city of peace with angels in weird robes dancing around having a great time. No, we're still on pilgrimage, aren't we? We still long to fully arrive. We still long for the vindication of God. We long for the day when children are no longer sold into slavery. We long for the day when young men are no longer shot dead in the streets because of the color of their skin. We long for the day when our families are not torn apart by violence and anger and divorce. We long for the poor to receive justice, for the hungry to be filled with good things, for the mighty and pride, prideful to be cast down from their thrones and the lowly to be lifted up. Indeed, our longing causes us to rise up in prayer that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done in this little corner of the earth as it is in heaven. And our longing and our prayer cause us then to go out and work for justice, to bring relief to any small amount of suffering that we can, to work for justice. Now, some of you are maybe thinking, yeah, I mean, I know that I should want those things, but I don't know if I really do. I want to want them. It sounds good to want them. But if I'm honest with myself, I don't know that those are like the deepest longings of my heart. How can I long for more of that full arrival? Well, the answer to that question is the same as the answer to the first question. What does it mean that we have already come to Mount Zion? In what possible way is that true? The answer may sound like a joke, but I assure you it is not. It's here. You have been brought here. And by here, I don't mean all souls or even Anglicanism. I mean 
the church. You have been deposited into an outpost of the kingdom of God. At various times, you've no doubt heard me say that what we do here is not about entertainment, though of course we hope that we can keep your attention. What we do here is not about education, though surely we pray that you go out from this place having gained some knowledge about God and yourself and your place in his world. What we do here is not primarily about serving others, though definitely we could use your help in the nursery. We hope that you'll come early and set up and stay late and clean up, that you'll go out into the city and serve meals at the rescue mission and fight for justice in the world. But what we do here primarily is strange. It's unique. It's kind of weird. And it doesn't happen anywhere else in our lives. And for some of us that are still new to the tradition, we're thinking, yeah, what do we do here? I mean, what does it mean? This stuff is kind of weird. And the answer to that question is maybe as infuriating as my last answer. It doesn't mean anything. It is something. It is something. What we are doing here is participating in reality. All week long, we are walking around almost like we're in a matrix of just these things that we have been conditioned to see as reality. And when we come into this place, that curtain gets torn back and we are actually participating in reality as it's happening. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that we have been brought to this place to the church of the firstborn of those who are enrolled in heaven. And if you've been to other churches within sort of the more ancient tradition, the reason that we all sort of feel the same in our, in our liturgies is because we're all sort of trying to get at the same basic truth, which is that in gathering together in worship around the Eucharist, the curtain on reality is being torn back, and we are able to see what's really going on. As one theologian put it, the liturgy of the Eucharist what we're doing here together is best understood as the journey of the church into the dimension of the kingdom. Our entrance into the presence of Christ in the Eucharistic liturgy is an entrance into a fourth dimension which allows us to see the ultimate reality of life. It is not an escape from the world. Rather, it is the arrival at a vantage point from which we can see more deeply into the reality of the world. In other words, what he's saying is that from the moment of the processional, we are led into the presence of God's throne room by the crucified and risen Christ. And all the way up to the moment of the Sursum Corda where we sing, lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord. That, that's not, I'm not saying shout it out from the back. I'm saying your hearts are being drawn up into the heavenlies where Christ resides. That you are there with the festal angels and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The cloud of saints, of all those who have gone on before us, is here. It's really here. And that's why we say every week in praise to God, therefore we praise you, what? 
joining our voices with angels and archangels and the entire company of heaven who forever sing this song of endless praise. Can you imagine? From the last time that you were here and we said together, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, they've been doing it nonstop since then. They've been doing it the whole time I'm talking. They'll be doing it with us when we join in, and they'll continue to do it as we feast at the table of Christ. This is the mountain. This is the city of God. This is the place of his dwelling that you have already been brought to. Now I know. Some of you are thinking, boy, we've got to get Steve out of the church. He's, he's been in too long. His brain's gone soft. I mean, really? Is he saying that I can't enjoy God when I'm out in nature? That I'm not really communing with him or somehow truly worshiping him? Yes, of course. Of course you are with him. Can I not truly worship God in my nine-to-five work? Absolutely you can. Is offering a hot meal or a cold drink to someone in need not an act of devotion? We are called to do these things as unto Christ himself. Yes, yes, it is. So we can't say that the rest of life is somehow divorced from the Eucharistic worship, this gathering, or is somehow not important. On the contrary, it is by gathering here week by week, by entering into the city of the living God and being surrounded by the festal angels and the great cloud of the saints that have gone on before us, it is by participating in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ in the cup and the bread that the rest of our life gets sorted out, that it actually finds its rightful place, that it gets imbued with meaning that it wouldn't otherwise have. This is the light by which you can see and make sense of the rest of your life, truly. To neglect this assembly, the gathered festal worship of the church, would be to risk rejecting the voice of him who speaks. God speaks in the context of his gathered people through his word and at his table. So to, con- to neglect gathering with his people would be to reject his voice at some level. It would be to allow bitterness to start taking root. It would cause us to, like Esau, look with flippancy upon our inheritance and sell it for what? A bowl of beans? How many hours a week do you spend at work? How many do you spend watching Netflix or online at the cafe or scrolling Instagram? Now, listen, listen. I'm not asking you to do an internal audit so that you can feel like more of a failure. This is not a finger wag, okay? I want us to recognize that the reason that we feel so anxious and torn apart and just kind of hazy in our life is because of these things. They're good things. They're not bad things, but they cannot bring us life. They will never bring us salvation, and they cannot do for us the one thing that we all desperately want, which is to give us love. But there is a God who knows you, 
And the God of the universe is calling, and he's calling for you, specifically. He wants you to know that he loves you. He says to you, I want to know you. I want to experience friendship with you. I want to show you the universe as I see it. I want to knit you back together. I want to bring you into an unshakable kingdom that reverberates constantly with shouts of joy. As C.S. Lewis famously said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Don't settle for the other mountain. Come into Christ, our mountain. He's beautiful. It's a place of love and joy, and and it's that home that you have been looking for your entire life. So as we continue in worship, I implore you, open your ears. Hear the festal shouts of the angels as they shout with us, holy, holy, holy. Open your eyes to see the cloud of saints that has gone on before us before us, and do not cease to sing with joy, because you have been brought to the city of the living God, to Christ our home.